the rules are the same for the big boys as it is for the, or, you know, the big entities as it is for small business. So the, the rules are no less complex just because you've got a small business. Commercial should always drive the transactions. Tax should be something you're aware of through the process. You don't want something to be extremely complex from a tax viewpoint if your business is quite simple and you just want to get on with running your business. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. The shelf beside my bed. Welcome to episode 321 of Text Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. Imagine you want to expand your business overseas. How do you avoid tax leakage? And just as important, how do you avoid being dragged into the overseas tax system? This is the question Simon Calabria of Webb Martin Consulting in Melbourne will discuss with you in this episode. But up on the top shelf. Typically, where we get involved, if someone's already got someone in the US, there's usually someone on the other side already giving advice. So if there's someone in the US and someone here, there would be, they're typically looking for the Australian advice and confirming, you know, is, does the US stuff sound reasonable? Whereas where you've got an, Australia, uh, an Australian business or an Australian person looking to go into the US without a US partner or without a US, you know, I say business partner, not necessarily a partner as in a partnership then they're looking for guidance on both sides, Australia and at least an initial guidance on what happens at the US end. Yes. And do you find that usually when you just look at what's happening in Australia, that you usually would have an Australian holding for businesses that expand overseas? So you would have a trading entity, be that a trust or a company, and then you would have a propriety limited that acts as a holding and basically also acts as a blocker back into Australia? Uh, generally not. What we tend to get, we tend, in the good cases, we tend to get cust uh, clients who are asking in advance, so before they've gone and done something. So they might have an entity that's trading here already, but they haven't necessarily pulled the trigger on setting up an entity to do the business in the US. Where we do, uh, we also see the flip side. We see where someone just sets up a company here or sets up a company in the US And then just starts trying to do business. And then it's not until down the track that you find out, you start explaining to them what that means for them and whether that, whether that is the scenario where you might have a blocker, like a holding co in Australia that might hold shares in a US co and that US co is going to trade in, in, in the US. Or you just have an Oz co that starts doing business in the US and they start trying to work out what does that mean? But if they come to us for advice, we tend to sort of try and walk them through the variations. Like you can have, you can set up a corporate structure and that might have that Australian hold co where no further tax is paid at that hold co level. But very quickly, they ask what happens once a dividend's paid out. So usually the people setting these businesses up are to generate income so they can improve their lifestyle in Australia, not, not just doing it just to build corporate profits and hold them. Uh, but but every client's different. Don't you find that when you are after income, you run into a lot more tax disadvantages than if you were just after the capital gain at the end? Absolutely. And I would say 90% of the people we talk to, once we explain to them the double tax trap, if you want to call it that, it's not. It, it's a double tax impost once they're looking at ultimate profits coming out to an ultimate Australian 
resident individual, they're very, they're very careful not to ensure that happens. But then the trade-off to that is, is timing. So are, are they trying to build a business to sell or are they building a business for income and possible gain in the future? And so I guess it depends on where they sit in that spectrum. Are they doing it for predominantly for income and hopefully they've got something to sell later on? In which case you don't want double tax in that mechanism in the structure at all? Or are they looking for, I'm going to build a business, I'm going to reinvest everything in the business, I'm going to build it up and after five or eight or 10 years, I'm going to sell it and get it, have no tax on the capital gain. If, I think it's a bit short-sighted to think you're going to have no tax. If you're in Australia, you're going to pay tax on capital gains. But in the corporate structure, there might not be capital gains. But how do you get, ultimately, why would you set a business up to make a big capital gain unless you wanted to pay that out for your retirement or whatever you wanted else? So ultimately, it has to come out to an individual. Don't you find the tax system, though, is very much skewed towards aiming for a capital gain? Because let's use the US as an example. You set up a business in the US, you grow it, you are successful. After X number of years, you sell it. You, and the way you sell it is you probably sell the shares in the blocker. And so the capital gain upon sale of the blocker, of the C-Corp blocker, are tax-free in the US, are CGT-free in the US. They arrive in Australia if you hold at least 10% and it's an active business. And of course, the question is whether the C-Corp blocker was running an active business if they were just the blocker. But let's assume it qualifies as an active business. Then it is CGT-free in that holding as well. And then you just have the top-up tax to, let's assume, 47% upon distribution of these capital gains to the ultimate shareholder. So yes, you do pay tax, but at least it's not more than 47%. But when you go for profit distributions every year, then the blocker, let's assume the underlying trading entity in the US is an LLC, then the blocker pays 21% US corporate tax plus any state taxes. Then the net dividend arrives in Australia as a NANA. So that sounds good. But remember, you already pay 21% tax in the US. And then when this net dividend is distributed, you pay 47% top-up tax again. So you actually pay more than 47% tax. Hence, yep. I have a feeling that the way our tax system is structured is very much geared towards aiming for the capital gain because the ongoing profit distributions are heavily taxed well over 50%. I think you've got to take one step back from that when you start looking at, if you're thinking about that as bigger businesses, medium plus, like large businesses, they're more than likely to use a corporate structure everywhere. Limited liability, they can control. It's easy to set up and easy to deal with customers in different jurisdictions. As you get into the smaller businesses, a lot of them are structured either as trusts in Australia or there might be a partnership. There might be partnerships. There might be, and then, and obviously there's also corporates. But at that level where they're tightly held, They often have a, a profile where they are looking at distributing profits through the business to the individuals so that they can improve lifestyle. Let's, you know, so that if they're going to set up a business in the US, it's going to generate some profits. They're not frightened for those profits to flow through directly to them as individuals. And if they're doing that, they would have a preference for at least not paying any more than 47 cents as opposed to having the double tax where you might pay 
as you said, 21 cents in the dollar at the US corporate level, plus some state taxes, call that up to another 9%. So you could lose 30% in the US. And you know if that comes out here and then you start having 47 cents top up on top of that, your ultimate taxes is substantial. Yes, well over 50%. Yeah, Probably so to yeah, well over it's well over sixty percent usually, and so no one wants that. So I think the bigger the business, I think the system with the, what you call the blocker. So that's like an Australian holding co that might hold a US company, whether that's an LLC or something else, it doesn't matter to some extent. And it's an active business in the US, and you get that blocker simply means you pay your, your corporate tax in the US, you bring the dividends back to Australia, non-assessable, non-exempt, as you called it, Nana. And at that point, if you happen to accumulate that entity and sell that, then yes, that's geared towards that there are the mechanisms in the in the legislation that are geared towards ensuring that there's either no capital gains tax in the US, but there would be capital gains tax in Australia. If you sold the whole co, if you sold the US co, there might not be any any further corporate tax. But as soon as you pay a dividend out of that entity, you've got double tax again. So timing becomes more important and it's a trade-off trade-off between double tax and simplicity and low capital gains or no capital gains or you try and structure it not with corporate entities you might structure it through trusts and llcs etc so that you can flow through the us taxes as as foreign tax credits in australia and you end up with no more than what you would ordinarily pay on additional profits in Australia, no more than the top marginal rate. Well, that's the, and that's the trade-off. That is the trade-off. Have a structure where you distribute the profits out each year and you pay your Australian tax on it, but you get credits for US tax and you end up with a situation where you say on your income as you grow, you're not paying any more than 47 cents. Yes. So basically hold the US interest in a trust then the individual beneficiaries can claim the US tax that was paid. That's the, that's the plan. That's the, the objective of those structures, yes. Actually, Simon, it only works if the trust holds the LLC directly and then the trust pays the US tax. If you use a US blocker, then the trust can't claim a foreign tax credit for the corporate tax either because it wasn't the trust who paid the tax, it was the corporate US blocker who paid the tax. So you can really only avoid this double taxation if you have an Australian trust holding an interest directly in a US LLC that doesn't elect to be treated as a company and then it's the Australian trust who pays the US tax and then can claim a foreign tax credit, and then you are only taxed at the marginal tax rate of the individual beneficiary. That's right. And that comes with its its own little problems because then you've got the trust you know, in the US trust and the US system. And the words trust don't sort of match up all that all that tightly. They but they they sort of have a system where every trust is considered an anti avoidance mechanism, which is quite interesting because I mean it's seen a little bit like that in Australia as well, but. There are, there are, the US tax system seems to be quite distrustful of trusts, despite the fact that they've got features like joint filing for, for married couples and, and the like, which automatically split income. And really in Australia, you know, our use of trusts is for flexibility rather than anything else. But you do need to be careful because then that exposes an Australian trust to the whole US tax system and understanding what they need to file when they need to file it and etc. 
Yes. So you would set up a trust just to hold the interest in the LLC. You wouldn't set up your trading trust to hold the interest in the LLC because then your entire trading trust has entered the US tax system. You would set up a trust just for that LLC interest so that it's basically an empty trust that has a tax obligation in the US. Correct? Yeah, we try, to re we try to explain that ring fencing or trying to limit the exposure to one entity and not to your Australian trading entity ultimately it's up to the clients to make that call but if you've got an Australian trading entity and it happens it say it happens to be a trust and then you use that same trust to try and start doing business in the US then that opens up the whole can of worms of transfer pricing and allocation of profits from a permanent establishment point of view and all, all those kinds of issues so yeah we try to keep it as simple as possible clean entity a new entity to do a new trust to set up to own, say, an LLC that's looked through and go from there so that you've got discrete filings in the US from one entity and it doesn't sort of impact on your Australian trading entity. And have you seen that? Have you had clients who set up a trust just to hold the LLC and then held the LLC interest? Yes. Okay. Different question. <laughs> Can I ask you about GST? I have no idea how GST, of course, they don't call it GST. I mean, I assume the US has some value-added tax system. I assume it's not federal. I assume it's state-based. And I'm not sure whether it works like our GST system or whether it's more a gross receipts tax. I have the feeling the US has this concept of gross receipts tax. I've heard that a number of times. Can you fill me in how this works roughly? Yeah, I can. Australia's got a goods and services tax, we call it the GST. The UK and most of the European Union have a value-added tax uh, or, or VAT. But it's and basically the same concept, isn't it? They are essentially it? one and the same. They are a consumption-based tax, a multi-tier consumption-based tax, meaning that it applies at each level in the distribution chain and then they use exemptions and, you know, it, usually the tax applies at every stage until the final consumption stage And that's when the tax sticks. Otherwise, it's, you know, business to business, we still charge GST it, and then we have a credit system. But in, when it gets to the ultimate consumer, that tax sticks. The US does, doesn't have a value-added tax system or a GST equivalent. And then this opens the proverbial can of worms because the US consumption tax system, if you want to call it that, is, is essentially a retail or a sales tax or a sales and use tax, they call it. And the majority of the states have a sales-based tax, about 45% of the states. And this is the thing, every state's different, the rates are different, They're all, the rules are quite different. So you really need to have someone over in the US who can assist you on state and local taxes. But they have What I, what I sort of term, I think, is a retail sales tax. And that's usually when the consumer buys something at a retail level, that's when the tax applies. Now, depending on which state, sometimes that, that tax is typically collected by the business, but how they couch it, some of them are actually imposed on the consumer, but they're collected by the business. Others are imposed on the business as a, as a retail sales tax and collected by the business. So I think the mechanisms are the same, even though that the terminology might be different. And then, of course, some states don't have sales tax. And so there's this disproportionate, you know, where do you buy things from? Where do you set up to do business in? 
And with the advent of e-commerce, all of the states are trying to get their little grab on sales that occur or have some sort of nexus in their state. So it doesn't matter where you set up. If you're selling into another state, those, each of those states are going to look to try and to grab their own little sales tax piece. Yes. And so how does this work? Let's say, A, you don't have any placement in the US. You're selling from Australia via Shopify or another platform yep. into the US. You have a 3PL service that charges something. When do you fall into the sales tax net? I, in well, the US? This, this, is, this is quite tricky, but Very broadly, the, the best way I could describe it, if, if you've got a third-party warehouse, then you've at least, you know, the, the third-party warehouse doesn't own those goods. The Australian entity or the US LLC would own those goods. And so straight up, you've got a physical nexus because you've got goods located in a state. And then those goods would be, let's assume they're goods for the purposes of this, if you're saying a third-party warehouse then when those goods are sold, they're going to be shipped and they're going to have a destination and that could be in another state. And so then there are thresholds across different states. And so really you need to do a state and local tax analysis about where you're selling to. Like, so where, where are you selling from and where are you selling to? And different states have different rules. Some have thresholds that you have to exceed. Some have nexus based on number of employees or contractors and so really there's no simple way to go through it other than to understand what are you doing and who are you selling to and where are the goods coming from and where are they landing hmm. and do you know if the 3pl service in the states usually covers state taxes so they take care of state-based sales taxes by 3pl third-party licensee yes Are you assuming that's a person that we're selling to the 3PL and they're on selling? No, I'm assuming the Australian business stores the products at the 3PL's warehouse, yep. then sells via Shopify and then tells the 3PL service, please ship my goods to this address in Alaska. Yeah. I think there would be different arrangements with each different 3PL, if you're calling them that. Typically, they would handle logistics. Whether they handle the ta the taxes as well would be a contractual matter. Yes. I wouldn't assume that the 3PL is going to handle the tax. And okay. even if they were, you'd want to know, you'd want to get your own advice, understanding what your liability was or wasn't. The filing is going to fall to the entity that's selling, which is the Australian entity. How high are these thresholds for each state? Are we looking at 100,000, 150,000? Yeah, they could, they at... could be. Look, I... I I, I, I must admit at this level, it is a, because state, the state taxes themselves, if you say, if you said the state sales tax impositions themselves are one tax that the states have. They also have county or city taxes as well that might apply. They have state-based income taxes or franchise taxes or net worth taxes. It might be gross turnover taxes. So It is an entire animal unto itself. And really, you've got to have someone on the ground in the US to help you with that stuff because there, the fight, there are too many filings and too many, too many pitfalls. And I'm an Australian tax advisor. I'm not a US tax advisor. So my job is to understand when I need to really delve in and get help from someone else and give people a, a heads up from, 
from the Australian viewpoint, but but really, I can't sit there and file those those returns for them. They really do need assistance on the ground. So it, it also then depends on uh, mostly what we say is when people are setting their systems up, we want them to set them up so they understand where the location is of their customers, at least to give them a chance. But some of those thresholds are reasonably reasonable, you know, so they are into the hundreds of thousands or they could even be higher. Some are quite low. Some may not have any threshold at all. And so... The, where I think people have become unstuck in, in, the, in the past is they don't collate any of the information, whereas at least if they're collating the information, they have the right information to give to the right advisor over there to be able to help them out to work out where they need to file and how much they need to file. So that means you can't just write off state taxes and say, I don't sell any more than, let's say, five or 10,000 in any given state. You can't do that. You really have to look at each state and get a feel for what the threshold is. Absolutely. And, and then each difference, like I said, some states don't even have the tax. So if you happen to be selling to a particular state, I mean, the key states that we see people deal with all have these taxes, New York, California, you know, most of, most of the, the bigger and more common sort of states are, have, all have these taxes. When we talk about state taxes, is the biggest state tax usually the um, gross receipts tax, so the sales tax plus franchise tax. You know, I think, for, for example, Delaware, I think has some kind of franchise tax. Are those the two main state taxes that you need to look out for? The way I sort of see them, there's, a, there's, state, there's state sales taxes. So, there, so there's a sales tax on the, on, or sales and use tax is the first one. The next one is that they have income taxes at the state level. So there's federal federal tax, obviously, US federal tax. But in addition to that, you then have state-based income taxes. But that state-based income tax only applies if you have operations in that state. If you only sell into that state, then you most likely only have to look at state sales tax, but not income tax, correct? State income tax. Each state, different thresholds, some terminology is different. But you certainly have to, again, if you say New York and California, yes, if you're based in those states, you are going to be subject to these taxes. Now, you're also saying, we're also sort of looking here that we're saying, it doesn't matter whether we use a, an Australian company and, an, and a US company and whether that's an LLC, you still have to pick a state to set up your company. So even though you physically may not be there, if you're going to set up an entity to carry on business in the US through even if that's an LLC, you still have to nominate a state in which to have the registered office, whether you've got any people there or not. And do you usually pick Delaware? No, I don't usually pick anything. It's usually the first thing is I try to say to somebody is, what are you doing? Where, you know, are you shipping widgets? Where do you need, where are you shipping your widgets into? Do you have a third party warehouse? Do you have an office? Are you looking to employ people? So, Typical, you ask business questions first, then you might get into which state makes sense. And yes, the tax issues are a consideration if you don't have any physical location. And Delaware is certainly a common state that people use. That's largely because they have workable corporate laws, if you like. Whereas there's, and there's, there's lots of other states that people can use. I've seen people use Nevada. I've seen people use Washington State. It really depends. Some people end up in California or New York because that's where their 
or you know, or Texas, that, we, that they might pick a state where they are going to locate their 3PL. So it just depends. It depends. And some of the taxes are small, whereas New York and California are high. And so they're usually the ones you try to avoid, although they're the ones that attract most attention because it's easy for people to fly from here to the LA and it's easy for people, you know, they want to be in New York because it's a big, a big bustling city with plenty of demand. Different question, intellectual property. I've heard a couple of times US tax lawyers saying you should keep the IP outside of the States. And my question is, have you heard that as well? And why would they say that? And the main reason that comes to mind is that I assume it's much easier to transfer profit out of the US if you have the IP somewhere else. Yeah, this, look, this is an interesting question. It's an interesting question from an Australian viewpoint as well. But I would have said, first and foremost, where where companies are generate where companies or clients are generating intellectual property and they want to protect it, then you know where are they generating that IP? Is the first question is the is the IP generated in Australia, or are they setting up a brand new business in the US and are they going to generate the IP in the US? Second thing is from intellectual property law rules you want to be able to protect that IP. Now, whether that's patents, trademarks, copyright, whatever it might be, it starts going into a sphere that I'm not an expert in. But so they've got to protect that IP. So they might want a patent that's generated in the US or a trademark, whatever it might be, or they might want worldwide copyrights. So I've not necessarily heard US lawyers, you know, trying to get have the ownership of, of IP generated in the US outside of the US. If you generate it in the US, how are you going to get it out of the US? It means you've got to transfer it out. So then you start getting into transfer pricing rules. And then you start getting into royalties for use of IP. And so it where that IP is and how do you protect it, if it's generated out of the US, you'd probably want to keep it out of the US. You don't want something unnecessarily caught within a US tax system if you can if you can at all help it because it is complex and it, and once it grabs onto something you know it it's there for good pretty much yes and certainly some of the bigger you know if you think of some of the bigger tech companies you hear, you hear the stories about Google and Apple various different you know Microsoft and various things where shifting whether they say shifting on and that's not probably the correct term, but holding IP in different jurisdictions or tax-friendly jurisdictions, that can be quite complex. Usually once someone's generated IP, it usually has value. And as soon as it's got value, someone wants to tax it if you move it. We do it in Australia and other countries in the world do it as well. So my viewpoint would be, unless it's specifically developed in the US, you would try to keep it out of the US. Then you've got to start looking at rights to use, licensing, royalties, profit shifting, all the complex international tax rules, transfer pricing, valuations, uh, they all come into play. And on top of that, then is withholding taxes on things like royalties, if there's royalties, so that, you know, a right to use know-how uh, or copyright instantly becomes, that's usually the definition of a royalty. And then royalties are usually subject to withholding taxes And then if there's a treaty, the treaties then might give you a favourable rate for withholding taxes, or there might not be a treaty, in which case you, you go back to your default withholding provisions. 
two thoughts. The first one is putting the big guys aside. When you look at small to medium business, they usually want to hold the IP close to where the center of it all is. So if you're an Australian business and you're expanding into the US, you might set up an entity in the US for distribution. So basically distribution entities all over the world. But you want the trademarks for all those different countries. You probably want to hold those through an Australian entity because that's that's where you are. That's where you own it. You don't want the US trademark with the US distribution company because then you very easily lose control of your brand. So my gut feeling is you probably hold the trademarks where you have your central command, basically. That's that's certainly common. That's right. But then I think times people are trying to protect it away from their trading entities as well. So they're trying to Yes, again, this, a separate comes down, entity. this comes down to legal and, and asset protection and various things and how effective can it be. But And often that the IP is generated in the trading entity itself, so it's then difficult to transfer it out or when people think about transferring it out, it's got too much value and they don't want to inadvertently trigger you know, capital gains tax, for example, in Australia, if they can help it. But yeah, yes. set up the right way. You would want to, you want the first and foremost... I think the IP side is less of a tax issue and more of a commercial and a legal and an asset protection issue, and the tax sort of follows it. But where they where come where entities or customer or clients get a chance to set that up at the beginning to try and protect it as best they can and achieve a good tax outcome, then I think that's you know that's that's the holy grail. That's um people yeah that's where clients you know think ahead before they even start. You, you just mentioned royalties and withholding tax. And then we're basically to the topic we discussed at the very start about capital gains and dividends. Because then if you have royalties being paid into a company, then yes, the company gets a FITO. But then once you distribute it, you, you're looking at a tax rate over 50% again. And hence, you might set up another trust that has some right to the IP, maybe leases the IP from another entity, but at least has some royalties. Maybe that's the same trust that also receives the profit distributions or so. But basically, you have a trust that receives the royalty so that you can claim a, a FITO for the withholding tax on those royalties. Yeah, you certainly would give some consideration to, you, you certainly always give consideration to when you get tax leakage and a withholding tax at, out of one country you might very well get a credit for it on the entity that receives it. But ultimately, like you said, if that goes into a company and the company, say a company in Australia is paying 30 cents tax and there's a 10% withholding, still that might mean that they've ultimately got 20% tax paid in Australia. But when that comes out, that's not that's not going to come out as a fully frank dividend. It's only dividend, it's only, you know, a dividend frank to the extent of 20%, if you like, not 30%. And so there's a it's a smaller amount of tax leakage, but still tax leakage. So yeah, whenever we look at these structures for people, we do try to minimize the leakage. And you know, often we get people asking us, how do I pay less tax? Whereas with these international things, we sort of start by saying, Well, how do we not pay double tax first? <laughs> let's at least deal with our current system and at least let's get us to a position where we're not paying more tax than we would otherwise pay when we're in Australia. As to whether there's any advantages beyond that, well, 
there might be, but the, the starting point is not to have any double tax at least. So yes. we do take into account withholding taxes as well as part of that sort of tax profiling or tax leakage sort of reviews. Now, I just have a very odd question, which you might not want to comment on, and that is S-Corps. Do you, you probably have nothing to do with S-Corps because foreigners can't invest into an S-Corps, so you probably don't want to comment on S-Corps, correct? Uh, look, we get questions from time to time, but I guess when we're, when we're being asked about the types of entities, again, this is where we defer to advisors that we might work closely with in the U.S., We typically see, we tip, more typically see people looking to use an LLC, for example, might be an LLC owned by a trust for the purposes of trying to remove that tax, tax leakage. But that doesn't mean necessarily that they won't then look at a C Corp. And then an S Corp is something in between. I sort of, I see, I treat it as something in between. But an S Corp really is a tax designation rather than an entity itself. So it's, it's something you elect to be. And it, is, it seems to be something much more specific to US and US trading rather than things that we sort of look at from the Australian viewpoint. But so, no, I don't come across them all that often. I'm aware of them. But we are typically, if, someone's gonna, if, if someone wants to set up a, a company in the US to act as a company, then typically it's a, it's a C-Corp. Or we go for a look-through status and we use an LLC and we make the LLC look through. So it's essentially treated like a partnership or uh, ignored from federal tax purposes in the US. So we don't tend then not necessarily to have to look at S-Corps. Yeah, but I, I know they're there. Yes. When you look at structuring your expansion into the US from Australia, you basically have four options, but I just say three options as well, just in case I need them, just in case I don't get there. The first option is You set up a trust in Australia and you invest directly into an LLC to avoid any tax leakage. The second option is you set up a C-Corp blocker in the US that then invest into an LLC. And then, of course, you start having tax leakage. The third option is you just set up a C-Corp and you just trade through a C-Corp in the US. And then, of course, you also have tax leakage and then the fourth option is basically you trade through a c-corp and then you have a c-corp blocker and that of course gives you massive tax leakage because then you already have tax leakage in the u.s when you distribute from one c-corp to the next c-corp and then you have tax leakage again in australia those are the four options but actually there's a fifth option and that is that you do use a blocker outside of australia but you actually don't place it in the us but for example you place it in the cayman Islands. so for example that you have an llc in the us but then a blocker outside of the us and outside of australia are these kind of the five options you <laughs> would consider it, it, that's certainly five options to consider now i guess There's probably one, and I'm not sure if I'm getting your blocker mixed up with how I would look at these from an Australian viewpoint. And that would be if you set up an Ausco to then hold 100%, say, of the shares in a US company. Now, I say that carefully because that US company could be an LLC uh, or it could be a C Corp or it could be an LLC that doesn't check, doesn't check the box to be file open, it just to... It wants to be taxed as a company, taxed as a C-Corp. 
that's the option I was referring to earlier about timing. So Oz Holdco, if you like, owns 100% of LLC in the US. Let's say the LLC is paying tax in the US as a company. So it pays its 21 tax, federal tax. Let's assume it's in a state with no taxes for a moment. And it pays out $79 as a dividend. And the LLC is an active business. So our CFC rules, the US is a listed country, comparably taxed. It's not going to, you know, there's no, no attribution of that income. It's just going to be taxed in the US, 21 cents and 80 and 79 cents comes back as in, in each dividend to the Oz Hold Co. When you say the LLC plays 21% tax, do you mean the LLC made an election to be treated as a company or do you mean the Australian Hold Co. pays the 21% on behalf of the LLC? I think in the first instance, I'm just using the vanilla of the LLC or a C Corp is just paying tax in its own right. Then it pays a dividend out. It's only got 70, you know, $79 out of every 100 or 79 cents out of every dollar to pay as a dividend. And if that comes back to the Oz Hold Co and that's non-assessable, non-exempt, being greater than 10% held in, you know, owns 100%, so greater than 10% of an active business, then that, that $79 can be held by the Oz Co, no further tax to pay when it's held by the Oz Co. And that's the timing issue differential. So that $21 is lost, no, no foreign tax credit to be obtained by that $21 at all. And if, if Oz Holdco ever pays a dividend, there's 47 cents on, on the 79. So you end up with, you know, more than 47% tax overall. But there's a timing issue. So some businesses would do that if they're in a longer growth phase and they want any profits that come out. They want to shield those profits from the US, but they might use it as working capital funding for that business to keep it growing but not paying those out as ultimate dividends to ultimate Australian shareholders. So we, we do see that as a, as a potential structure as well, rather than just having, you know, two US companies like a C Corp and another company in the US. You're saying the Australian Hold Co is the shareholder of the LLC. And so, and so the Australian Hold Co basically pays the 21% tax, hence gets a FITO for the tax it pays? You can do that. That's a variation. So the first one I was just saying was you had an Oz Hold Co owning an LLC or a US, just a US company, C Corp call it, and the C Corp just pays US tax. And when they pay a dividend, it comes back to the Oz Hold Co. A variation on that is you have an Oz Hold Co owning an LLC, which is looked through, and then effectively it's treated as if the Oz Hold Co is carrying on business in the US. Oz Hold Co pays tax in the US. And then you would say, usually when in that structure, you would say the Oz Hold Co has got a branch. It's treated as if it's got like a branch or a PE in the US. And then our rules basically say an Australian company with an overseas branch, 23AH is going to say its name from the Australian viewpoint, but it's paid US tax because it's name in Australia. You don't get any foreign tax credit for the underlying $21. Ah, oh, yes, you're right. So you don't actually get a FITO, even though you pay the foreign tax, you don't get a FITO because it's NAIN under 23AH. That's right. Isn't that then the same 
risk with the trust if the trust holds an interest in the LLC? Is, is there a risk that it falls under 23AH as well and that you don't get the FITO? 23AH doesn't apply. It applies to a company with a PE, a company with a branch. Okay. So 23AH doesn't apply to the trust. Hence, we would avoid the tax leakage. If that's, the, uh, the, that's, that's the theory behind it. Yep. Yes. Good. The tax stuff's hard enough on, you know, tax in Australia is hard enough. Tax in the US is hard enough. When you start sort of merging those two systems together, it becomes more complex again. However, I tend to come at these, even though people come to us and they want us to give them the tax structuring, I tend to always start these by understanding what is the client trying to achieve? And so if you've got a client that's like selling physical goods and they don't really need anyone in the US and they can distribute through a third-party uh, warehouse, they may not need any employees on the ground. Uh, usually if they're selling something, eventually they need to have someone help them sell stuff in the US. And so that then asks the next question of, you know, if they want to engage employees who are based in the US, what what's the best structure for that? And so... Really understanding the business first, I always go to what is the business? What are you trying to achieve? What kind of profits over what time frame? Are you building up to, you know, are you setting this business up to build it up so that you can increase the capital value and then sell it off to someone else or partner with someone else or get someone else to come in and, you know, uh, invest in that business and take it on on the ground, if you like? Or is it, or is it just an adjunct of what they're doing in Australia? They've got a very successful business in Australia, might be worth a few million dollars profit and they just want to see if they can tap into the US market and generate another few million dollars profit for little, you know, for with little extra effort. I say that it's always a lot of effort, but so the commercial sides are the things that I sort of take as my lead first to then give options. Cause really it's up to the client to make a decision about which way they want to go. If they really want very limited liability, they want, they want to grow employees on the ground they want to set an office up in the US, you know, they might just be better off going with a straight C Corp and go with limited liability and go with, you know, you're protecting yourself from the US, sort of all the things that happen in the US, litigious and otherwise, and just de- and deal with deal with the double tax as best you can. Now that can be dealt with to some extent by in a transfer pricing sense, but you know, the US rules are just as just as onerous as ours in terms of transfer pricing. So it's a balancing act. And so, yes, you can have no double tax, but you can also have only have corporate tax and call that corporate tax at 21 or, you know, comparably to what we would have here. And if you're reinvesting those monies and you're not expecting to, to pay much of that away out in way of dividends over a long period of time, then a corporate corporate structure is, is fine. Whereas the flip side is if they're trying to generate income and bring that income back and they want to upgrade their house or buy a jet ski or, you know, lifestyle assets or retirement, or whatever it might be, then yeah, the, the flowing through and the repatriation of profits becomes might become the more important and therefore you want a structure that means you don't pay double tax. And on top of that, you've got all the legal things and everything else that come with it. So that that's how we sort of try to react to when we get asked questions. But we've often, you know, we've often had ones where someone says, well, I'm doing business in the US and you say, okay, and I got told to set up a company. And so they've set it up and they're ready to go. And then they don't realize what happens afterwards. Whereas it's always good to get the question up front so you can have some input into the structuring. 
we're probably seeing an increased number of queries asking us for input on on not just the US, various jurisdictions. I think, as I said, I said at the beginning of this, the world seems to be, from a business point of view, becoming a smaller place, and it's certainly allowing smaller businesses to trade on the world on a world arena rather than just limited to their local local jurisdiction. So we we are seeing more and more inquiries, and whether that be US, Singapore, Hong Kong, China, UK, you know, Europe. You can't really put UK and Europe in the same question anymore, given that UK went through Brexit. But so yeah, it's interesting. It, it is interesting. And mm. and the other side of it is the rules are the same for the big boys as it is for the, or, you know the big entities as it is for as it is for small business. So the the rules are no less complex just because you've got a small business. But we try to simplify it wherever we can, and that's where that commercial you know. Commercial should always drive the transactions. Tax should be something you're aware of through the process and decisions made uh, on a, you know, you don't want something to be extremely complex from a tax viewpoint if your business is quite simple and you just want to get on with running your business. My eyes keep watering up. Welcome back. So you focus on both ends of the spectrum. You have the business operations overseas on one end and you have the business owners in Australia on the other end, and I don't mean the trusts or companies that might hold an interest, but I mean the actual business operation and the individual human beings that ultimately own everything. So you have an actual business overseas and the individual owners in Australia, and now you draw a line between these. If you put a company anywhere onto this line between the business operations and the individuals, then you have tax leakage. And it doesn't matter whether the companies in Australia are overseas. It doesn't matter whether the company is a trading company or just a blocker. And it doesn't matter what type of company it is, whether using the US as an example, it doesn't matter whether it is an S-Corp or a C-Corp or an LLC that makes a corporate election. Any company whatsoever, any entity that is treated like a company for tax purposes will give you tax leakage if placed between the business operations and the individual owners. But if there's no company between the overseas operations and the ultimate owners, then you don't have tax leakage because any tax the owners pay overseas, they claim back as a foreign income tax offset, as a FITO, in individual names. So if you put the overseas entity into individual names or a partnership or a trust, in other words, the individuals pay the overseas tax, then these individuals can claim the FITO. And as long as you can claim a FITO in individual names, you don't have tax leakage. So specifically using the example of the US, if you put the business in the US into a C-Corp or use a C-Corp blocker and or hold the US interest through a holding company in Australia, then you have tax leakage. Because whatever tax is paid in the US the ultimate owners won't get a FITO for the US tax upon distribution. So they will pay full tax again, mind you on the net amount, but nevertheless, full tax. But if you put the US business into an LLC and then hold that interest in individual names or through a trust, then you can claim a FITO for any tax you pay in the US, be it corporate tax or withholding tax. And so this is what we will look at in the next US episode tomorrow, Episode US 12, Marsha Dungok of Withers in San Francisco 
will discuss the US tax implications with you. When your Australian trust holds an interest in an LLC in the US that is treated like a partnership for tax purposes, what are the implications in the US? Why is this so dreaded by some advisors? Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode. Thank you.